Hello, it's Wednesday, April the 19th, and welcome to Area 45, the Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Institution Research Fellow, and joining me today, Terry Anderson, Hoover Institution John and Jean Denault Senior Fellow, a member of Hoover's Property Rights, Freedom and Prosperity Task Force, and past president of the Montana-based Property and Environment Research Center. And that just happens to be our topic today, environmental policy in the age of Donald Trump. Terry, thanks for coming by. Let me be the first to wish you a happy Earth Day, which is two days from now. (laughs) Yes, I thought about that. And uh, it's always a a big event, of course, in the environmental community. And how do you Uh, plan to celebrate Earth Day? Well, I celebrate it the way I do every day. I celebrate markets and freedom, which is the best way to celebrate Earth Day, in my opinion. Uh, And I I think that, indeed, is is the, the... potential for the Trump administration to make its mark on the environmental policy in general, but maybe even Earth Day. So the environment was not really talked about much in the election. Donald Trump ran very hard on economics. He ran very hard on immigration. He ran very hard on what I guess we would call social cultural drift. Hillary Clinton, in response, ran very hard against Donald Trump and didn't really get so much to the pieces of Donald Trump as kind of the sum of Donald Trump's parts. So the environment, I think, Terry, really kind of got a pass, but here we are now approaching the 100-day mark of the Trump administration. And what do we see? He's made two appointments on the environmental front. His interior secretary is Ryan Zinke, like you, a Montanan. And his EPA choice is Scott Pruitt, former Attorney General of Oklahoma. What do you know about Ryan Zinke? As a, do you, as a Montanan, have you spent time with Zinke? Well, I've met him and, and uh, can't say that I've spent a lot of time with him, know who he is, of course, from there. Uh, what you know mostly about him, if you're from Montana, is that he was a Navy SEAL. That was sort right. of his uh, uh, card to play when he was running for Congress and was only a one-term congressman, having gotten the appointment as Interior Secretary. Right. Uh, and he, he really seemed to be much more a person who would know about foreign policy or defense than than Interior. But, of course, coming from Montana, where there are significant amounts of, of public lands, uh, over 30 percent of the state is federally owned, right. uh, uh, he he clearly understands the issues that face Western states in particular when it comes to to land policies. He's a very politically ambitious guy. I was getting emails from him uh, just on you know lists before he was even running for the House, and they continued to get him when he's in the House. It was anticipated he was going to run for the Senate. And if you look at his interior uh, website right now, Terry, it's a very carefully laid out site of him having meetings and Jerry he's meeting with Jerry Brown on the website he's meeting with Indian tribes he's hanging out in national parks what can an interior secretary if you're Ryan Zinke and you really are politically ambitious and let's let's say he thinks he's going to be president one day he wants to run for president one day maybe I'm making too much here but let's say he actually has that kind of aspiration what can he do as interior secretary to make that next step be very careful <laughs> uh, and I think that's what he'll be mm-hmm. Unfortunately, really, uh, if it, he is going to to really walk a, a fine line between development and uh, hardcore preservation, if you will, kind of be uh, between what people might think Trump stands for, you know, more oil, more gas, more use of our public lands and and a John Muir kind of perspective. He fancies himself as uh, being a fan of, of uh, Teddy Roosevelt 
and uh, calls himself a conservative conservationist, a great term, one that uh, we coined actually up in Montana at Perk. Uh, but he, he, you know, and I think he could be both of those words if he really wanted to, a conservative who is a conservationist. But I suspect he'll be very careful. In fact, as uh, went just after he was appointed, the Wall Street Journal really took him to task because he has emphatically said, I stand against any transfer of public lands to the states. Right. Okay. So he got through the Senate confirmation process rather easily. I think he only had about 35 or so votes against him. On the other hand, Scott Pruitt, the new EPA administrator, is a lightning rod. And it's hard to think of an environmental lightning rod of this dimension, well, maybe since James Watt back, mm -hmm. in, the, uh, back in, the, in the Reagan years. I, off the top of my head, I can't think of too many interior secretaries since. But boy, back in the 1980s, Watt was a huge deal. He was just the boogeyman to the environmental crusade. What has Scott Pruitt so worked up by the left? Well, uh, speaking of Jim Watt, he was a good friend and uh, knew people in his uh, term at, at Interior as well. Right. Uh, I, th I, I think the difference between Zinke and Pruitt is that Zinke will be very careful in what he does with public lands. And for many people, the public lands are just out there. And they, they hear public lands and they think national parks, they think wilderness areas, they think the place they go hiking on the weekend or camping. And, and he won't touch those kinds of things and therefore isn't much of a lightning rod. On the other hand, if there was one area where Trump did uh, show his cards uh, during the campaign, it was regarding carbon emissions, coal development, and all the issues around global warming. And of course, that then uh, means EPA is going to have much more to say. And, and so Pruitt uh, has a harder time running the, the line between being what I said before, a preservationist and a conservationist. He, he, is, uh, he either has to do what has been done in the administrations where we haven't had uh, much controversy, o Obama the most recent, of course, uh, at least mo mo controversy from the environmental community. And so he, he's either going to have to buy into that, in which case then Trump leaves no environmental legacy, or he says, uh, I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be for some deregulation regarding environmental issues, and and therein uh, makes him a lightning rod, I think. Okay, so as a free market proponent, you're okay with Zinke, and you're okay with Pruitt as, as cabinet selections. Well, yeah, if I can take Zinke to start with, uh, even though he got the low grade from the Wall Street Journal because he wouldn't transfer public lands, federal lands, to right. states, uh, while he was in Congress, his record suggested he was at least willing to give states more say in how public lands are managed. And, and since, back to Jim Watt, uh, since the Reagan administration and the Sagebrush Rebellion, which uh, I was really part of a long time ago, uh, states have just lost more and more control of what goes on on public lands. And so you take the Clinton administration and the spotted owl and the shutting down of timber development all through the Northwest. Uh, and then most recently, the uh, creation of Bears Ears National Monument in Utah, which right. really I stirred I want to get to that up. in a couple of minutes because I okay, want to well, talk about national monuments. Yeah, right. and, and so I, I think, you know, Zinke has the potential and, and suggested through his congressional record that he would turn more uh, responsibility or give states more authority in how public lands are managed. So, yeah, I give him, uh, I, I have hopes there, and I think that could be the legacy of Zinke and Trump. Regarding Pruitt, I, I, I don't, uh, I, I have hopes uh, mostly because I think 
uh, the president, in rescinding some executive orders, has signaled that uh, he thought thinks that the environment uh, was taking too much uh, control. Environmentalists were taking too much control of, of of environmental policy and wants to find more of a balance. Again, I don't think there's going to be any rape and pillage of the environment, but I think that there will be a rollback of some of the more uh, uh, onerous environmental policies that have come in the last uh, 15 years. I think this is a very interesting White House to look at, Terry, in this regard. Uh, you look at the last two Republican presidents. George W. Bush uh, loved to bathe himself in West Texas. He would go to Crawford and go to the ranch. He liked to clear brush on the ranch. He liked to work on the land. Very comfortable in a Western persona, preceded by Ronald Reagan, who could be, well, including his father, actually, but Ronald Reagan, who, who could be more Western than Ronald Reagan, his campaign poster, literally with a cowboy hat, like to go to Santa Barbara, ride horses, clear the shrub, two men really of the West. Donald Trump as president, Terry, has not traveled west of the Mississippi so far. <laughs> yeah. His travel has been to a few states and up and down the coast of Florida and back. Um, he is not really a Westerner in appearance. He is not really Westerner, perhaps, in attitude. So I think it's very interesting to watch how his environmental policies are unfold. And this does raise the question of what exactly he should be doing. You are kind enough to lay out some principles. And let's go through these and talk about what you think Trump should be doing. Point number one, reform the Endangered Species Act to pay for supplying endangered species and their habit. This is a case where, of course, the Endangered Species Act passed unanimously in Congress in 1973 and, and has been due for reform. Uh, it, it, it's been before Congress a few times, but nobody's been willing to touch it. And I think that the Trump administration could, could really take a role here by saying, we, we want to save endangered species. We don't want to substitute uh, wild turkeys for extinct bald eagles. Uh, so I think that the Trump administration could, could take a, a, a lead role here in, in pushing forward with an agenda to change the way we manage endangered species. And that really would be to focus on the key aspect of saving species, habitat. And if you look at where the good habitat is, it's not on the federal lands. It's not on the peaks of the Sierras or the Rockies. It's down in the valleys where there's water and there's mm -hmm. uh, vegetation. And those lands are privately owned. And I think the key here is to find ways to reward private landowners for doing, uh, for helping save species. Although Leopold, the great conservationist, said, uh, ultimately conservation will boil down to rewarding the private landowner who serves the public interest. And we don't do that now. We penalize them. So I think that's the key change in, in endangered species. And there are lots of ways through farm policy to do that. Simply, instead of paying farmers to not grow things, pay them to grow endangered species. Uh, Terry, is that a function of the administration driving that policy, or is that a case where the administration will tell Congress, here's what we're willing to sign on to? The latter. It, it has to be the administration, because it's, it's, it's the law now, and th that law would have to be amended in several places to make this happen. Mm -hmm. So I think it would require leadership on the president's part uh, going to Congress saying, this is how we think it should change. And, and he really has a chance to do that. That ought to be one where Republican uh, congressmen and senators could say, we can get on the bandwagon for this. This is, this is all about what we're about, conservative conservation. You would think also some very contentious Senate races coming up in 2018 across the West, North Dakota, Montana, Montana. which is one of the ground zeros of 2018. Republicans would push this idea. Yes, for sure. Okay, point number two, experiment with the National Park Management, franchise parks, higher fees. Well, uh, the national parks are in, 
in trouble, even though most of us don't see that. Uh, there's a $12 billion backlog for infrastructure in parks. So this is nothing about the, the ranger who uh, gives you a little tour of Old Faithful. Uh, this is fixing the roads, fixing the toilets. I was in Yosemite last spring and was I took some photos of the, of the, the restroom facility in the headquarters area. And it was just appalling. If it were in a work site, OSHA would shut it down. It looks so filthy, dirty, and, and run down. Uh, this is the kind of infrastructure that needs to be taken care of. And that means uh, to, to really fix the parks, again, conservative conservation would suggest, let's have some user fees here that, that make people foot part of the bill for doing this. Of course, there are entrance fees to parks, and those have gone up recently a little bit. Right. But there's lots more that could be done. They could partner with with uh, private firms who would help sponsor changes. I was just in South Africa, and right at the gate of one of their major national parks, on the one side said, welcome to Auto Elephant Park, and the other side it said, sponsored by a cement company. So uh, there's no reason you couldn't partner more with private enterprise, and that ought to be just Trump's trump card. Congress is afraid to touch Social Security, Terry. Do you think Congress would dare touch the Golden Pass to national parks? Uh, well, they, they actually did touch it did with they? by raising uh, the, the Golden Pass to uh, now up from, I believe it was $10, which is what I paid. Right. And I think now it's 80 And uh, the uh, superintendent of Yellowstone National Park is a good friend, and I've talked to him many times and, and actually helped him campaign to make that happen. So, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people, even people who are members of A, AARP would, would understand that paying more means you get more. You get better results. Okay, point number three, devolution of public land management. Well, this is, again, a case where I think Zinke could have a big role to play, and it's one, I think it's where the Trump administration could leave its greatest legacy. Mm -hmm. Going back to the states and letting them have a heavier hand in public land management is, is key, not just to to getting more coal developed or, or more trees cut on public lands. And, and all you need to do is look at wildfires that rage throughout California and Montana both. And you see that we need to do timber management, not, not just leave it hands off. And right. if we devolve to the states more authority, we would see more management. It would be good management. And that doesn't mean you run roughshod over wilderness areas or national parks. So I think devolution to the states is, is really an area where the Trump administration can make a difference. And not just in land policy, but in environmental policy. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Trump administration already rescinded an executive order from from the Obama administration, which was called WADAS, the Waters of the United States Executive Order, which gave EPA authority over every little drop that fell anywhere in any state virtually. And, uh, and, and it was an unnecessary rule because states are not trying to just dump gunk into their waters. Right. Take take Montana, whose waters flow both into the into the western rivers, the, the Columbia, as well as into the Missouri and Mississippi. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're not trying to pollute North Dakota and Missouri and, and all the states downstream. So I, I think you could devolve these kinds of things, and that's what, what the recension of the water rule really did. Let me run a hypothetical by you, since we're sitting here in California. It is now the middle of April in California. We are getting through the end of a rainy season, it looks like, although each week it rains again, so spring <laughs> seems to be a wash, but summer will soon be here. The summer in California, Terry, will be very dry, as it always is. 
which means what? That means in forests, which already have a lot of dead wood sitting in the forest that can't be cleared out, there's a lot of shrubbery and a lot of, a lot of stuff lying on the ground. It'll get dry, it'll get it'll turn into tender, and then what'll happen come about September, mark my words, we'll have a lightning storm. Lightning will strike in the forest and a fire will begin. And then we're going to stand around and say, what do we do about our forest? And those on one side will say, well, if you allowed us to clear a forest and we'd avoid these things, and others will say, we can't touch our forest. What say you? Here's a case where well, Obama hasn't made the appointment as to who will be chief of the Forest Service, uh, but I, I, a good friend of mine, the late Jack Ward Thomas, was uh, chief under the Clinton administration. When Jack left office, uh, he and I chatted about it, and he, he said to me, he said, I had people who could manage the very problem you just described, but he said we were tied, in his words, in a Gordian knot. Right. And, and that Gordian knot was one of lawsuits, of regulations, and I think, again, the Obama administration only made this worse. I think the Trump administration could untie some of the regulatory parts. And a chief of the Forest Service who, who had more autonomy could begin to manage the forest so that we got rid of some of this tinder. Uh, without that, we're going to continually having more fi wildfires and, and, and climate change. Uh, there is some increase in temperatures and, and some right. change in, in uh, moisture. So climate change is only going to make that worse. And, uh, and it means we have to manage our forests, something we haven't done. Okay. Point number four, give Indian tribes more autonomy over land resources. Well, this is this is really my uh, shtick. I, and let's I, talk about what land resources are, because in my naive view of the world, I think Indian land, and I think California, the casinos. Yeah, so. <laughs> and the casinos, the the tribes that have casinos in California or Connecticut uh, populated areas, right. do pretty well with gaming. Mm -hmm. But if you look around the Western United States, in particular, uh, from Oklahoma to uh, New Mexico and north to Montana, there are tribes with millions of acres of land and, uh, um, and many, many resources that could help bring them out of poverty. Let me take the Crow Reservation in my state. The Crow Reservation uh, has the largest coal reserves of any entity in the United States. And it's very good coal. It's low sulfur, it's high BTU, and yet, as the chairman of the Crow tribe uh, said to me, Darren Old Coyote said, Obama's war on coal is a war on my people. And so Indians have a huge amount of natural resources that can make them wealthy. The average value of coal to a Crow tribal member is $3.5 million. That's what it's worth if you could mine it. Right. But they can't mine it. So I think that, that w American Indians have, have been, uh, of course, under colonial rule mm -hmm. uh, since the, the early 1800s, and that colonial rule has left them tied in a Gordian knot. They can't do anything with their resources without the BIA, under Ryan Zinke's uh, uh, authority, uh, without the BIA giving them permission to mine their coal, to farm their lands, to drill their oil. And here again, I think devolution to the tribes. If they decide they don't want to do it, so be it. That's their decision. But it ought not to be something that people sitting in Washington, D.C. hold them hostage with. All right, let's go through the process quickly on this. So coal was an issue in the campaign, but the Trump campaign really kind of focused on Pennsylvania with it. They focused sort of on the Rust Belt with mm -hmm. it to tie it in sort of the larger 
you know, economic development issue. They didn't bring it out to Montana unless I was sleeping and missed it. So let's say the Trump administration decides coal in Montana is good. It's good for the Indians. It helps them achieve wealth, and it's good for America in terms of strategic energy needs. So what is the process for actually getting that out of the land? Well, you weren't asleep, but it was a very quiet move uh, during the campaign. In the very last days of the campaign, a group that called itself the Native American Coalition, uh, a, a group of tribal leaders uh, threw their support to uh, Trump in the last days of the campaign. Again, you're not talking about a major voting bloc that's going to make a difference in, For a, this in reason, an election. Uh, but, but it was a signal that that these tribal leaders recognized what uh, what was what was holding them back, right. and uh, just on that same point, I got a phone call one day uh, during the last days of the campaign, and the other end of the line said, "Hi, this is John Voigt, you know, the movie actor," and I kind of laughed, and he called me because he's he's very much an activist for uh, American Indians and wants them to have more autonomy. And he, he and I worked on seeing if we could get a, a meeting with some of the Trump campaign people and some tribal leaders. It, the last part of the campaign was such a frenzy. It didn't happen. But I think there are people like, like John Voigt and tribal leaders who are going to meet with the Trump administration again, probably fairly quietly because it's just, not, as you described earlier, it's not a big issue for right. most Americans. But I think uh, I think Zinke, if his record in Congress says anything, it is that he will do his best to give uh, tribal governments more autonomy over the resources they have. Is it done Terry at the stroke of a pen, or does it have to go through a legislative process or a regulatory process? Well, some of it could be the stroke of a pen, and some would take some legislation. Uh, take, for example, legislation passed in, I think, 2000, supported by a senator from North Dakota, which exempted the Fort Berthold reservation from many of the BIA regulation and other federal regula regulations. They went from 49 regulatory steps to drill for oil and gas on the Fort Berthold to four. Well. Mind you, the Fort Berthold sits right in the middle of the Bakken Reserve. Mm -hmm. As soon as that was lifted, uh, I have uh, looked at GIS data, there's just a, an eruption of oil and gas development on that reservation, and as a result, millions and millions of dollars flowed in. So that was legislation. Right. But there are regulatory, and, and in fact, already the Trump administration has rescinded one of the Obama uh, executive orders that, uh, that hamstrung reservations in their ability to sell coal forcing them to go through an evaluation process that was very onerous. Okay, point number five, make caps, i.e. grazing permits or fishing quotas, securing property rights. Well, again, for most of us, uh, you know, things like grazing on public lands or fishing in the oceans uh, isn't very important. We don't hear about it, but if you're, if you're a cattle grazer or if you're a, a fisherman, uh, your permit to do those activities is, is, is your livelihood. And one of the things that, that uh, uh, I have supported for many years, done research on, is the idea of creating uh, a cap-and-trade process for mm -hmm. these, if you will. That is, right. cap the amount of fishing that can take place, give the fishermen ownership of that cap and then let them trade it if they want to. And where where these have been tried 
uh, especially in Canada, New Zealand, and to a certain extent in the United States, they have worked magically to, to improve the efficiency of fishing, to reduce the overfishing, mm -hmm. and uh, really give consumers a better product at a lower price. The same with grazing. There's huge controversy in the early years of the Clinton administration. It was no moo in 92, and then it was cattle free in 93, and I don't know if they kept up that litany, but right. the environmentalists were saying, get cattle off the public lands. If we simply, and, and I proposed this as part of a task force that I headed when uh, George Bush was running in his uh, early days, actually hadn't even announced his, his candidacy yet, but when, uh, when George Bush, uh, when we met with him, we said make these tradable, and he wanted to, but uh, again, this was something you had, to, you had to have some courage to do, and whether this administration is willing to allow that. And it wouldn't take legislation. It would be a very simple process. Be under the, the auspices Service. of what, BLM? BLM and the United States Forest Service. Both, both have grazing permits on them. Both uh, have extensive amounts of permits on what, what would right. be probably marginal grazing land. But if you're a rancher, marginal or not, it's worth something. Do we have a new director of the Bureau of Land Management? Not yet. All right, so you're drawing up the resume for that person. What's the right profile for that job? Well, like Zinke, it has to be somebody from the West, I think. It has to be somebody who understands Western issues. And uh, after that, uh, I think it, it, it would be, be best if it were somebody uh, from the resource community. Uh, but it, it, it can't be somebody who uh, is also uh, opposed to sound uh, conservation policy. And, and so, uh, again, I think somebody could run on uh, this con conservative conservationist uh, agenda uh, to become uh, a director of the BLM, and, and that would be a person who would say, you know, if environmentalists want to buy out some grazing permits on a willing buyer, willing seller basis, we'll support that and make that happen. All right, finally, point number six, remove price distortions related to climate. Uh, yeah, well, uh, we at Hoover, uh, Gary Leibcap and I and Alice Hill have just uh, launched a, a, a program here at Hoover on adaptation to climate change. And, and our focus in this adaptation project is to find ways in which markets uh, would make some changes in people's behavior uh, in response to changing climate. And so the perfect example is we subsidize hurricane insurance. Right. Well, if we're going to have more coastal flooding due to higher sea levels and more uh, catastrophic kinds of uh, storm events, then we ought not to be subsidizing that insurance. If you want to build your house as the waves are lapping up onto your ankles, build take, your house at the, the seashore, right. go for it, but you're responsible. And so I think especially removing insurance distortions is an, is an incredibly important part. But, uh, and we, you know, we, we subsidize crop insurance, for example. It means that people keep growing crops in places that maybe aren't very suitable as climate changes. And mm -hmm. again, these are the kinds of things that, that would require some fortitude on the part of the administration. Okay. Um, a few minutes ago, Terry, you mentioned Bears Ears National Monument, which is in southeastern Utah. Uh, Ten days before leaving office, President Obama set aside about a million and a half acres of land uh, as the Bears Ears National Monument, uh, also included the Gold Butte National Monument near Las Vegas. Uh, this wasn't the only time Obama did this as president. He did it 30 times as president. Uh, it's all perfectly legal, Terry. He's doing it under the uh, Antiquities Act of 1906, uh, a 
fostered by uh, Teddy Roosevelt, which has been around for now 110 years. I did a little sleuthing on this. Um, this law has been used by presidents 150 times. So Obama has used it 30 of the 150 times. So you can perhaps make a little argument that he was either excessive or more than, more than eager to employ the law to grab land. Um, you have very strong feelings about this, I believe, as a Montanan. I think most Westerners do. Um, the law's purpose is to protect the federal land, and here's the exact language on it. Quote, historic landmarks, historic and prehistoric structures, and other objects of historic or scientific interest. Could it be any more nebulous than that? <laughs> no. Well, it, 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 it is so <laughs> incredibly nebulous as you read it. On the other hand, if you took uh, just the average person on the street and said, uh, uh, would this uh, apply to a sagebrush flat in, in uh, southeastern uh, Utah, they'd say no. And, right. and if you said, would it apply to some cliff dwellings from, from uh, ancient Indian cultures, mm -hmm. uh, they'd say yes. Right. Uh, but when you designate one, nearly one and a half million as the Bears Ear was, uh, you're including a lot of those sagebrush flats. And, you're, and Obama was really using it as a way to preclude oil and gas development on those sagebrush flats. Now, how much would have occurred or would occur if that hadn't happened is, is up for question. But the point is these were not the kinds of things that Teddy Roosevelt had in, in, in mind. Uh, and, and you look around at, at the, the older national monuments as they were created, Devil's Tower in, in Wyoming, for example. This is clearly fits the definition you just read. Right. But starting, well, probably not starting with, but, but this, this is one a lot of people will remember, even during the Clinton administration, uh, when he created an even bigger monument in Utah, uh, the Grand Staircase Escalante, right. uh, nearly two million acres. Uh, you know, people were, were furious in Utah, rightly so, and it included some canyon lands that deserved uh, some preservation, but it included a lot of lands that were grazing lands and no longer are and destroyed ranching communities. And so the Bears Ears is just another example of this, and Obama, as you say, gets the trophy for the most. Uh, and, and here again, this is one where, where President Trump has said he would uh, rescind that uh, designation, which he is, uh, could do just as easily as just Obama said designated. the magic word rescind, so this is my question for you, Terry. Does the president have the power to rescind designations? He does have the power, I think. No doubt Congress would weigh in and say he doesn't, and there would be some pressure to Con to take that power Congress away. has revoked designations in the past. And Congress can do it I for sure. Jimmy Carter's last president this happened to. They did to him about 12 times, but Congress can revoke. But again, does the president have the executive order? This gets legally very complicated. Oh, oh, to be sure it does. And, and I think if he were to do it, he would do it uh, in the way the congressional delegation from Utah proposed dealing with this monument before Obama made it a monument, namely setting aside those portions that clearly fit what Teddy Roosevelt meant them to be. Right. Uh, these, there are, I have not been there, but I'm told and seen pictures of, of some pretty spectacular cliff dwellings and some canyon areas that make me think, yeah, I'd like to see this preserved. Uh, but you could carve those out and, and then rescind the rest and, and or maybe just designate a new one, I suppose is another way to think of it, and not necessarily create the kind of uh, stir up the hornet's nest that r total recension would do. Right. So that's the question, Terry. How you're advising Trump on how to go about this. How does he do this in a rather 
sort of calm fashion. That was how does he minimize the pushback from the environmental front? But then again, the environmental front's going to have a fit no matter what he does, yeah. right? Well, you know, part of what what was cons- concerning environmentalists, uh, as the uh, Trump administration said it would it would pull back on this, was that this was just a a way of of making these land transfers to the states. And so one thing, as Zinke has already said. Uh, this is not going to be administration and administration making large transfers to the states, which then states could privatize. I haven't used that word. Jim Watt found out what happens if you use that. Exactly. So I think he could start by saying, we're not talking about giving this land to the states, and we're not talking about uh, privatizing. Uh, what we're talking about is a more rational approach to the management of these lands along the lines of the, the language you read, mm-hmm. and and then saying, those that aren't true antiquities right. uh, will leave open for development and back to what I said earlier, give states more authority and autonomy in, in, in the management of these lands. This strikes me as a good opportunity for Trump to tap into governors out west. Governors who are closer to the ground than Trump would be, uh, but governors who can perhaps, because they have the constituents, they can perhaps make the case, they can take the case to Washington saying, talking about the land grab, talking about the unfairness of the policy. I think it's a challenge for Trump just in terms of pure optics if he just decides, okay, we're going to give back one-third of this land or a quarter of that land. The press will run crazy with it. They'll mm-hmm. start talking about Trump mm-hmm. wanting to develop land and who's giving money to Trump and so forth. But maybe that's what you do, Terry. Mm-hmm. You try to make it more of a local conversation. And, well, Bears Ears is a, is a good example of how this could could play out because the governor of Utah has been very vocal. The whole, congr- not just the congressional delegation, but the state uh, legislature has been very vocal in opposition to what Obama did. And I think Obama, uh, sorry, Trump and and uh, the governor of Utah could could get together quite easily. In contrast, if he came to my state and tried to get a meeting with the governor of Montana, he, uh, I don't think, could get the meeting. So so he'd have to pick and choose the governors. Montana is politically a curious place these days. Uh, to be sure, uh, uh, you know, we have uh, uh, we only have one congressman, and uh, that one will special be a special election, special coming, election right. coming up. Uh, and it'll be an interesting one to play out. The, the Republican candidate is... Uh, but you know, clearly was a Trump supporter, uh, but and he, the Republican candidate for Congress, lost the the race for governor. Uh, so he's he's conservative. The other one is much like the uh, uh, the recent race in, that just happened in Georgia, North Carolina. In Georgia was yesterday. Uh, yeah. The uh, where where it's just a, a political nobody who was in a a bluegrass band and <laughs> I think went bankrupt a couple of times. And right. uh, this will be another case of. It's it's Trump versus <laughs> versus those who don't like Trump. Right. I won't even say uh, liberals or Democrats, and so it'll it'll be an interesting one to watch. So we've talked in very general terms about what can be done in terms of a free market approach to the environment, but your advice on where the Trump administration needs to really focus what its priority should be. What is the first priority for this administration? I think the first priority is to hammer home that conservative conservation can work. And that means finding the ways that that ensure that we get the conservation that we all want. Uh, I like to say we're all environmentalists. Who, who out there says, uh, you know, I'd like to see water dirtier, air dirtier, and uh, strip mines everywhere. So we're all conservationists, and I think it needs to push on on that button and make it clear that it's not going to give up on on 
on the environmental gains we've made in, in the last 30 or 40 years. At the same time, it needs to say we have a more conservative approach. And, and I would start with more devolution to states with authority over not just land policy, but environmental policy. After all, that's what the founding fathers uh, thought this country would be built upon, federalism, uh, the notion that, that we are the United States, right. uh, not one huge government from D.C. So I think that's number one. And then number two is to focus on the regulations that, that it, uh, it, the administration, can deal with uh, without Congress because it's, Trump has already uh, shown that there's going to be battles uh, in Congress no matter what he does, and, and uh, those won't be easy battles. But the, but the recension of the, the waters of the United States uh, uh, is, a, is a classic example. Another one, uh, recension of an executive order that gave the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service control of wildlife in Alaska, where Alaska Fish and Wildlife, uh, state Fish and Wildlife people clearly knew what they were doing. So I think... Uh, giving more authority back to lower levels of government, giving them the support they need so that they, you know, they, they perhaps have resources that come from the federal government, but letting them make decisions about how clean the water, the air uh, will be and, and how much uh, resource development there will be on those lands. All right, final question. So you and I are having this conversation a year from now where Trump has been in for one year and almost 100 days. Tell me your benchmark for success. Are you looking at that coal development in Montana? Are you looking at relief for the people of Utah in terms of the land? What What's going to be on your radar screen? Well, I, I, I suppose for me, as I said earlier, one of my, my uh, real concerns in a place where I have uh, a lot of compassion and research to back up my compassion is, is back to Indian tribes. Uh, if, if the Trump administration begins to uh, release some of the federal stranglehold on, on Indian resource management, that'll be, that, that gets him an A plus in my books. I think if he begins to uh, devolve some authority for land management back to the states, uh, Bears Ears would be the place I'd look look for him to start, and if he does that, then again, I'd give him give him an A. Uh, on the environmental side, uh, just rescinding the waters of the United States, if he didn't do anything else, and it was a year from now, I'd still give him an A just for that one. That was that was a huge overreach on the part of the Obama administration and EPA, and one that signals a. a, a a change. So those are probably the areas where I would I would look first. The tougher ones, you know, changing changing the Golden Eagle Pass prices and so on are right. are tougher, and I wouldn't expect him to. He, he's smart enough to not take those on. Okay, Terry Anderson, thanks for coming by today. And again, a premature but a very sincere Happy Earth Day to you and to you as well. <laughs> so every day is Earth Day when you think about it. Exactly. You've been listening to Area Forty Five. A Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate us and review us on iTunes. And yes, please subscribe to us. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, I encourage you to sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows, including Terry Anderson, straight to your inbox every business day. You can also find the Hoover Institution on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care, and thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org.
or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.